Hi, I'm Bob Whitaker. Welcome to another episode of Civs 101, the show where historians discuss Sid Meier's Civilization series. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the Scottish, a brand new Civ added to Civilization VI in the Rise and Fall expansion. Led by Robert the Bruce, the Scottish Civ is one of the more versatile civilizations in the game, allowing players to easily pursue a domination victory using the War of Liberation ability, a cultural victory with the help of the golf course improvement, or a scientific victory with the Scottish Enlightenment ability. Outside of the gameplay, the inclusion of Scotland in Civilization VI comes at an interesting time historically, as long-standing issues in the United Kingdom, as well as more recent events such as Brexit, have caused the Scottish to contemplate independence again. To help me consider the Scottish Civ and its historical context, I've invited Dr. Michelle Brock onto the show. Dr. Brock is a historian of early modern Scotland and an associate professor of history at WNL University. Her research focuses on religious belief, demonology, witchcraft, and Scotland in the popular imagination. She's also co-director of the Digital Humanities Project, Mapping the Scottish Reformation. Fans of History Respawn will remember Dr. Brock from the episode on Diablo 3, my personal favorite episode of History Respawn. Mickey, welcome to Civs 101. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm delighted to hear that the Diablo is at, up, up there as one of your favorite episodes. Oh. That was really fun to record. Mickey, it's number one with a bullet for me. That was so much fun. Go. I learned Satan's a lot. Satan's always that a good episode. topic. Yes. <laughs> Hail Satan. Um, <laughs> uh, so Mickey, uh, usually I ask guests on this show about their experience with the Civilization series, uh, but I know you're not that familiar with Civilization. So instead, I'm wondering, what do you make of the way that Scottish history is often portrayed in popular culture? Uh, and from my perspective, going by popular culture and then also going by what we see here in Civ Six, it seems that Scottish history is either Robert the Bruce or it's the Highland Jacobites in the 18th century. And there's not much outside of those two topics. So I'm wondering as a Scottish history expert, what do you think of how Scotland is portrayed in popular culture? Yeah, so I think the first thing that we have to note here is the profound influence of what scholars have called the Braveheart effect, right, which, mm -hmm. um, of course, is a, a very sort of real phenomenon that after the film Braveheart came out, I think it was 1993, um, there was this huge attention to Scotland, um, tourism skyrockets, it becomes this place that starts to loom even larger in people's popular imaginations. But of course, Braveheart distorts a number of things, right? Braveheart presents this image of Scotland as, you know, being um, this perpetual underdog, which of course is true to some extent, but there are all sorts of historical anachronisms and problems in the film. For example, the real William Wallace was not from the Highlands. Um, and in fact, his sort of movement of rebellion against the English, which was of course fairly strategically brilliant, was also aided by a simultaneous rebellion from the North by a guy called Andrew Murray. Um, and it was a much more complicated 
picture of things than usually that film suggests. But, but the Braveheart effect has meant that when people think of Scotland, right, they think of this simplified story of the wars of independence, but even more than that, the figure of Mel Gibson clad in blue face paint that would have never been worn <laughs> at, that, at that time period, um, you know, screaming freedom um, on, on the battlefield. So I think the Braveheart effect has meant that the medieval era, or at least this romantic image of the medieval period, looms really large and how people conceptualize of Scotland. Um, media in other forms has also been really important in shaping public perceptions of Scotland. No doubt Outlander uh, in recent years, every time I teach my Scottish history course, the first thing students ask me is, oh, have you have you, you know, read or watched Outlander? And I'm actually quite a fan of, of the book series and it gets some things right, other things quite, quite inaccurately done. Um, but of course, that's a period really focused on the Jacobite era and, mm -hmm. and the attention to the 18th century. So part of it is just that media focuses on these eras. And even a movie like Mary Queen of Scots, the recent film on Mary Queen of Scots, which came out, um, I think, two years ago, that, you know, that that film was made with a lot of attention to historical detail, um, but it was also very much from an Anglo-centric perspective. And mm -hmm. Scotland is this sort of dark, romantic place. You know, they, they picture the royal palace at Holyrood as if it was in the middle of, you know, Glencoe or something, which, of course, <laughs> isn't isn't accurate. Um, but I think that has led us to think of Scotland as, you know, totally historically, totally rural, as sort of perpetually in the medieval period to, to some extent. Um, and then when we do get into the 18th century, it's sort of the swashbuckling Jacobite. So as most histories are, very romanticized, um, often interestingly very Highland centric, that is to say the image of the Highlander looms really large and, and um, various sorts of Highland paraphernalia, things like kilts and bagpipes and so forth, tend to get associated with Scotland as a whole, when for, for most of the period um, that I work on, certainly late medieval through um, the 18th century, no one in the lowlands, which is where the bulk of the population lived, would have ever worn a kilt, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so that is very much a sort of, you can thank the Victorians for that, um, <laughs> for the <laughs> extreme interest in, in Highland culture uh, and, and, you know, the, the selective breeding of Highland cows and things like that, that all become the symbol of Scotland. So long answer to your complicated question, um, but simplified Braveheart effect and the erasure of periods, as you say, outside of the era of Wallace or Bruce or the Jacobites. So that makes me a little bummed because the 17th century is so fascinating. That's the period that I study. And there's no good sort of drama on the Covenanters or any of the exciting things that happen in that in that period. I'd like to see more popular attention on the 17th century. Yeah, I, you know, I could say too that as somebody who grew up in the 90s, obviously Braveheart, big influence on the way I conceived Scottish history before I went to graduate school. Uh, and then also, uh, my wife is a huge fan of Outlander. I mean, just ah, okay. <laughs> a huge, huge fan. And so she's read the books. Uh, we've watched the show. And uh, yeah, I say it's kind of a bit more of the same. I think, you know, when you do think of Scottish history outside of, uh, you know, Robert Bruce, William Wallace, et cetera, it is kind of the Jacobite rebellion, the romanticism of the Scottish Highlands, uh, you know, the... Uh, the kilts, all of that. And uh, it's, it, I think it is disappointing. I mean, as somebody who doesn't know Scottish history nearly as well as you do, it just seems like there's so many fascinating characters and so many different directions that uh, could go in. So I suppose, I mean, if you're interested in 
other areas, you just need to write a, a romantic novel about those I areas mean, of, of it, Scottish it, history. <laughs> exactly. I should also just briefly say that, you know, various tourism boards in Scotland have played into some of these um, mm. sort of stereotyped romantic visions for obvious reasons, right? They want folks to come. I mean, tourism, as I said, really increased to Scotland um, after Braveheart came out. Um, but, you know, you can't walk past a you can't go on one street in Edinburgh and not see a bunch of shops selling, um, you know, tartan and, and all of these sorts of, of things. So um, Scotland certainly benefited from its sort of looming large in the popular imagination. Um, so, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just different than what history actually entails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I suppose in that way, this game, Civilization VI, uh, is in good company as, a, you know, we're talking about kind of general depictions of Scotland, Scottish history in popular culture. And uh, here for Civilization VI, uh, we've got uh, the Civ leader, uh, Robert the Bruce, here in mm. uh, his full medieval glory. <laughs> and uh, I'm wondering, you know, as a historian of Scotland, what do you make of Robert the Bruce as a representative figure? for Scotland? And then furthermore, do you have any ideas of maybe other figures in Scottish history who could make a good representative figure for Scotland in this type of game? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think actually Robert Robert the Bruce is as good a figure as any in some respects. I think certainly a better figure than Wallace, um, who didn't I mean, he was sort of, he was important, but actually we described him far more importance than he they actually actually had in, in the story of the Scottish Wars for Independence. He was a bit of a, a blip in that story, an important one, but, but not a major figure like Bruce would continue to be. So I, I do see Bruce, it makes sense too, because there is this truth about Scottish history and the popular imagination that reflects historical reality, which is Scotland as a sort of very martial imagery, and mm -hmm. that much of Scotland's sense of itself was born out of um, its relationship with England, and sometimes defining itself as in league with England, but then often, as in the case of the Wars of Independence, defining itself against this sort of push of English oversight. Um, so, so Bruce, in some ways, encapsulates or embodies those things, which which does make sense. Um, I also say that Bruce, you know, he's connected to probably the most famous document in in Scottish history, the Declaration of Arbroath, um, which was composed in 1320, and the Declaration was part of a sort of broader diplomatic campaign, which sought to assert that Scotland was an independent kingdom, it was not a feudal land controlled by the English, um, and that Robert the Bruce, who had been excommunicated at the time of the Declaration of Arbroath, um, should be re reinstated and recognized by the papacy as the true leader of Scotland. Now, the reason I bring up the Declaration of Arbroath is it really is at its core sort of a propaganda piece for Robert Bruce um, for basically saying that he is the defender of the Scots, that he's delivered the Scottish nation from all this peril against England, um, that Scotland to some extent and who the king of the Scots was, was in the sort of hands of the Scottish people. Um, there's a very famous line in the Declaration of Arbroath about, um, you know, as long as a hundred of us remain alive, we will never be brought under English rule. And it goes on to say, we're not fighting for riches and so forth, we're fighting for freedom itself. Mm. Um, and, and this document, Scots often sort of think about it in the way that English might think of the, the Magna Carta, which is to say that it has this outsized 
influence and how people envision their own constitutional past, as it were. The Magna Carta was actually not nearly as important um, as, <laughs> as a lot of folks have argued. The Declaration of Arbroath, true, as I said, it, it wasn't really a statement of popular sovereignty if people have conceptualized it was a Bruce propaganda thing, but it had the effect, right, of giving Bruce this sheen in Scottish history. Um, and I think actually, as an interesting American connection, there are a lot of Americans who will say that, you know, the Declaration of Arbroath provided a blueprint for uh, the Declaration of Independence. Well, that's bogus. There's no connection whatsoever. <laughs> but these founding documents in the historical imagination do matter. And Bruce mm -hmm. is at the center of the most important Scottish one um, for a whole host of, of reasons. So that to me also, I like to connect figures to important texts. Um, mm -hmm. And Bruce does have that sort of legacy. So he was a master of propaganda. So he kind of wrote himself into the story to some extent. So I guess, you know, I guess good for him. Um, <laughs> um, but, he was laying the groundwork for being in Civilization VI. We, he, you I know, mean, we just didn't know it. Well, he was a man <laughs> of quite a lot of foresight. So there you go. Um, extraordinary indeed. But yeah, so there are other there are other candidates who I think would also be really interesting figures to represent um, Scottish civilization in a game such as this. So, um, for example, there's the, the later uh, 11th century King Malcolm Canmore, who becomes Malcolm III, King of Scots. Um, he was a very sort of, um, I guess you could say, Europeanizing or modernizing force in Scotland. He brought a lot of Scottish institutions closer in line with their continental counterparts. And that was really important for making Scotland a sort of key player in European affairs. Um, so Malcolm III, or even better yet, his wife, um, Margaret, who becomes St. Margaret of Scotland after her death. She's the only Scottish royal to ever receive sainthood. And she was really fantastic in terms of encouraging the Scottish church to be more in line with um, the, the, the Catholic church in Rome, as opposed to being sort of this independent actor. And that, that had a lot of implications actually for Scottish international relations moving forward. And, and I always like to see women represented in these sorts of games, which can mm -hmm. get a little bit blokey in their uh, depiction of history. So she would be great. Um, John Knox would be a sort of fascinating figure uh, to be the leader of a game like this. John Knox was, as listeners might know, um, essentially considered the father of the Scottish Reformation. There are other figures that are important, but the Reformation in 1560, um, he's at the helm of that and a lot of the movements for essentially political revolution in Scotland that allows the Reformation to occur. And, and I think there are a lot of people who associate Presbyterianism and the Reformation with Scottish culture writ large. So, um, to that end, I think Knox would be an interesting, interesting figure to be to be leading some of uh, some of the Scottish civilization. Um, you could also have a whole host of figures who are part of the Covenanter movement in mm -hmm. the mid seventeenth century, acting in rebellion against the um, king of, of well, I should say the it was a dual monarchy, King of England and Scotland at the time, Charles I, who um, overstepped his bounds. This is a, a trend in Scottish, Anglo-Scottish relations. Um, <laughs> and, and there was a, a sort of military and religious and political rebellion um, by the Covenanters. And there are some great figures in Covenanter history who had also fought um, in the Thirty Years' War uh, as part of Gustavus Adolphus's campaign. So they would also be interesting figures to, to be um, part, part of this game. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of having a religious figure uh, as a potential leader for the Civ. I do wonder if that might put off uh, players. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed while they're playing, but uh, there is a religion mechanic 
uh, in the mm -hmm. game, which you can kind of see uh, if this goes away and this goes away. We don't need nationalism right now. Um, there is a religion mechanic. So we've got uh, Protestantism uh, down here. Uh, that's in interesting. South, Catholicism up here in the north. And, you know, as part of the game mechanic, I'm attempting to convert uh, Brazil <laughs> to Catholicism. Oh, wow. um, but okay. it is uh, it, it is interesting. You know, the religion mechanic has been a big part of the civilization series. Hmm. I think going back to Civ Four. Uh, back in uh, kind of the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. So it has been a part of it, but it's not very often that we've gotten uh, civ leaders that I can remember who have been major religious figures. And I just wonder if the game developers are a little worried about putting off certain people mm. who, you know, and this has got a worldwide audience, uh, putting off certain groups by having a religious leader, bringing up a potential mm. subject. But it does seem to me, especially when you're talking about Scottish history, that it would make a lot of sense to have those kind of figures included, uh, at least as an option uh, for a leader. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is, is crucial for modern audiences to remember is that religious figures, religious leaders were never just that in the pre-modern past, right? They were mm -hmm. also profoundly important political actors. I think the way that we tend to compartmentalize um, religion and, and politics or religion and, and war, um, is, is, is artificial, right? Is certainly artificial for the past. I mean, Oliver Cromwell, for example, if this was a, an English game, Oliver Cromwell mm. was a deeply, deeply devout Puritan figure who wrote as much about religion, if not more so than about um, the development of the new model army, for example. So I think it would be an interesting exercise in historical complexity, right? To use religious figures in these sorts of games to help convey just how intertwined and overlapping um, these sort of spheres of influence are. That's or a great point. Say. Yeah, that's a really, really great point. Yeah, we'll write this down and we'll send it to for access to developers. <laughs> that was really great. Really nicely put there. Um, so in a general sense, I'm wondering what you make of this Scottish civilization. And, you know, the idea of civilizations, you know, the kind of bedrock for this game series, it's one that harkens back to a different era of mm -hmm. historical study based around arbitrarily constructed groups, usually living in the ancient era. So given that kind of proviso, what do you think of the way in which Scotland in a general sense is depicted in this game? Yeah, so so as you mentioned up front, I am not a player of, of this game, but I did do some uh, digging around on the very fantastic uh, wiki that was two of them, I guess, that were put together on some of these, these figures and aspects of the game. Um, the first thing that just really struck me, and I suppose this is probably the case with most of the games, but is just the extent of chronological collapse in place in the game. That is mm -hmm. to say that you have um, this sort of medieval or medieval-esque society, right? I mean, a lot of these games actually draw on medievalisms and medieval-esque places in the same way that Game of Thrones is medieval-esque, but it's not actually located in say the 12th century. Um, but a figure like Bruce, right, is a, is a sort of um, really critical early 14th century figure. And so it's interesting to see him in this game as the leader of Scottish civilization at the same time as Scottish enlightenment is a sort of, um, I guess not a power, but a, a, a sort of an add-on, something important yeah. that gives you I, I'd power. Say, right? I, I, that... Calling it a power is totally fine. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the Scottish Enlightenment, you know, really doesn't begin in earnest until 
the early 18th century, um, if, if you're going to agree that there is something, if there is such a thing as the Enlightenment, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to theories of, of elite and disparate actors who are writing interesting things. But, but this movement that we think of as the Scottish Enlightenment isn't until early 18th century. Um, actually, and as a side note, another great figure to lead this game might have been Robert Burns. Um, oh. I consider him very much this sort of hybrid Enlightenment romantic figure. He's um, the most famous poet ever produced by Scotland. He writes brilliant poems that are really directed at sort of the people. He comes from a farming family. He's he's not especially um, a member of the elite society, but his poems are, are really interesting. He actually wrote a famous poem about Bannockburn. In fact, much of how we remember Scottish history has also been filtered through the lens of Robert Burns. Um, mm. So I don't know if, if any of these games ever use literary figures, but that's sort of interesting too. Um, I don't know if you would be much for sort of martial warfare, but if there was, um, you know, a literary button, or I guess there's, you know, cultural golf courses. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Know. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, as far as victory conditions, um, you know, the game allows you a domination victory, uh, which is kind of playing into the use of the Highlander and then also this mm-hmm. Bannockburn ability with right. War for Liberation. Uh, but then also the Enlightenment, as you can see here, it gives you bonuses for science and for production gives you um, a generation of a great scientist point uh, per campus, great engineer. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really helpful uh, tool in which to you know, kind of move towards either a science victory uh, and then also with golf, uh, you know, a cultural victory. So, I mean, I think the Scottish Civ is one of the more interesting ones because it's so versatile and there's so many different ways that you can go in. And I think on the one hand, and uh, you know, I'll see what you think about this, on the one hand, it is kind of very medieval, right? You know, you've got Robert the Bruce, his look here doesn't change uh, throughout the game. You've got you know, kind of a Highland castle here in the background. Um, and so it does hearken to that very medieval version of Scottish history. But at the same time, the kind of almost, I would say the diversity of mm. uh, abilities here, it's not something you see with many of these other civs. And we've, we're going up against uh, Portugal, uh, Korea, Poland, and Brazil. Mm they don't have the same sort of diverse kind of historically tinged abilities that you have here with Scotland. Yeah. So I would say, you know, on the one hand, it is disappointing, like you said, that it's so focused on medieval history, but on the other hand, it's like, Oh, well, you know, there is some diversity here, you know, this kind of idea of the enlightenment and the Highlanders, yeah. of course, and golf courses. And yeah. I don't know. I think that's, that's fascinating to me about the Scottish city. Yeah, and actually, I, I have to say, I love the golf courses bit. Yes. Um, and the reason I love that is because that is actually, to a large extent, accurate, right? People are playing golf um, in the period that I study, for example, quite regularly. In fact, they're often getting in trouble uh, for not going There's to church on Sundays. Golf but courses for, here. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is the type of space that in, say, late 16th century, um, local parish churches would be cracking down on youngsters who are at the golfing greens, as opposed to being in Kirk listening to sermons as they ought to have done. Um, and golf courses really were public spaces for recreation in Scotland's history. And that's the case, even if you go to St. Andrews now, you can play in the old course. So it's, I actually really like this because one of the things, the course about golf courses today is they're associated with country clubs and social elites are quite closed spaces. You can't even walk your dog on them. But in Scotland, they were open, right? They were part of socialization and culture. So I like that this game kind of captures the democratized nature of something like a golf course uh, in Scotland, which was absolutely accurate. Yeah. And I don't think you would have seen that in earlier versions of this game, you know, say 
Civilization one through four, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It didn't have many opportunities to develop culture uh, mm. or to develop religion uh, or to develop any kind of non-military means of mm. winning the game. And so that's kind of been one of the nice things about uh, not only the newer Civilization game, Civ Six, being the newest one available, uh, but then also with the uh, downloadable content, the expansion packs that have come after that have included civs like Scotland, and then also included these uh, improvement tiles that mm. I just don't think would have existed, um, you know, in previous iterations of the game. So it is, I'd say it is, it is neat. It's a lot of fun. And it's cool to see, you know, something so pretty uh, oh, yeah. amongst all of this, you know, unit uh, and uh, improvement uh, uh, tiles here that you can, you know, kind of look at. It's like, oh, it's like, oh. Well, man, sure, St. Andrew's here. <laughs> Although I have to say, it's, are those palm trees? It's looking a little sunny. I mean, we, you know, we may want to change the, the weather aesthetics of the game. Um, you know. <laughs> There's another one. I think I've got, yeah, so here's another one. And this one is located next to an iron mine, a mountain, uh, a lumber yard, and then uh, some trees. A little bit, uh, I, would, I would say a little bit more realistic setting for yes, Scottish indeed. golf course than uh, the tropics. So I have actually a question. So yeah. I'm looking at, at the sort of what, I, what looks as my left-hand side of your screen where you have the mercantilism um, mm -hmm. sort of world tracker um, section. And what I was curious about is did the civilization games ever recognize the role that the transatlantic trade and slave persons played in the development of civilizations? And I ask that because Scottish history right now is having a really important moment where they are investigating the extent to which Scotland was involved in the slave trade um, and trying to think about how to recognize that in its built environment, in Scotland's current built environment, and in potentially things like reparations. So I'm just, I'm just curious if these games ever captured that aspect of, of sort of, quote unquote, the development of the Western idea of civilization. Yes, so that has been a big point of controversy with the Civilization series. And when the first game came out, there was a mechanic for slavery, but mm. uh, it was based in the ancient world. Uh, so for instance, you could force your workers as the leader of the Civ to complete a great wonder, to complete a project uh, with the cost of people, right? So basically you were spending uh, your population in order to rush build something. And so that was controversial, obviously, for obvious reasons. <laughs> so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they largely stripped it out and kind of stripped out uh, any discussion of, uh, you know, uh, colonialism or uh, slavery uh, and the relationship between the two uh, in the games. Uh, but they did bring about in a limited way in uh, kind of an offshoot series uh, called, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on it. It's a, uh, called Sid Meier's uh, Colonization. Mm. Uh, and so that game, uh, obviously, uh, as you could probably guess from the title, uh, set in uh, you know, 15th, 16th, uh, 17th, and 18th century history, focused on uh, colonialism uh, in the New World uh, coming mm -hmm. from Europe. And so there's brief mention of slavery in that, but not in a sustained way. And in this game, you know, as you'd mentioned with uh, mercantilism, we do have, I think, I'll, I'll check this before I keep talking. Uh, we do have, uh, I think, a mention here, either in mercantilism or mm. in colonialism, about the importance 
of slavery. Let me see if I can find that. But this has been a very big point of controversy because, you know, on the one hand, the Civilization series has got more kind of broad historical topics and a bit more depth than you would expect from most uh, history games. But at the same time, uh, it does tend to try to avoid uh, some of these more what we could call difficult uh, historical topics. And mm. uh, it is interesting how they uh, pick and choose. Uh, so I didn't see anything in mercantilism. But then here in colonialism, we've got some mention of yeah, civilized, civilizing mission. But I don't see any mention here of slavery. Let me just put slavery. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, there you go. That's your answer. Well, and that's interesting because I did play around a little bit with some of the entries um, for some Mm -hmm. of the figures in the game. And they actually, you know, the the historical information was really quite good. So it sounds like it's a case of being um, incomplete, which is is often the situation with some of these these games. Um, Yes. But yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think we'll just wrap up uh, with the last question here. And my last question, the one I pitched to all of the scholarly guests who come on the show is based on what you know now about the game. And it sounds like you've done quite a bit of research now. (laughs) And then also based on uh, what you know about Scottish history, are there any kind of thoughts that you have, any recommendations you have for the developers, uh, if they're continuing with this project, on how to improve uh, the history in this game or how to improve in particular the depiction of this Scottish sieve? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I think would be great to see, and maybe actually this option is built in there, but not as sort of obviously available when you go to the game, um, is to have sort of built-in timeline features that when you're moving around the game and you're having a figure like Robert the Bruce and you're having something like the Scottish Enlightenment being a sort of special improvement or power that you can make, to have sort of chronological markers, um, Mm -hmm. not that it would disrupt, but that would be really useful for folks who are playing to orient themselves to say, okay, well, Robert the Bruce, well predates the reformed church, right? Which is in this game, but there was no Protestantism at the time that Bruce was alive, right? Knowing things like that could, without having to sort of dig in the civilizationopedias could be really interesting. And there might be a way to have a sort of built-in almost sort of timeline pop-up when you switch um, Mm -hmm. to sort of from um, the medieval era to the enlightenment. Um, that I think could be could be really interesting. Um, I would love to see some seventeenth century figures incorporated <laughs> into this game. Um, again, I think the Covenanters would be great. Um, I think it would also be awesome to see this game recognize the existence of union um, because mm. if you're having anything like the Scottish Enlightenment or mercantilism, right? These things predate the union in Scotland, no doubt, but they are accelerated in some really important ways by the union in 1707. And so if we're thinking about sort of um, the future of the UK and Anglo-Scottish relations historically, having that as sort of a note could be could be interesting. And of course, I always wanna see more women in these games. Um, women yes. are actually really key players in a whole host of campaigns, military, religious, political, otherwise. Um, so sometimes I think they get a bit left out of some of these games based on what I've seen so far. So that would be um, would be very cool to see. I'm seeing Renaissance era ends in a couple of turns. It yes. just looks like, yeah. Yeah. So maybe and so, it does sort of nod to that a little bit. Well, and it does. And here I'll show you the uh, 
the tech tree here. And so uh, right now, uh, this is where researching steam power. And so if you oh, go okay. over here, you can see if you tilt your head vertically, or I guess horizontally, mm -hmm. you could read out industrial era. And so it does give you a sense of uh, progress. But uh, as you were mentioning, it would be great if, you know, that kind of change from the Renaissance to uh, the industrial era would give you some sort of you know, historical context for that. And like you said, you kind of have to go rooting through the uh, cyclopedia, you know, the in-game encyclopedia in order to find that kind of information. Uh, and so, you know, they do uh, have these, uh, when you get a new technology, they've got this pithy quote uh, from uh, Sean Bean, uh, who's reading it out. He's kind of the narrator <laughs> for the game. Yes, uh, of and yeah, and uh, but see, he'll, he'll come in say like uh, some quote uh and uh it you know it could be an opportunity there to talk a little bit about um you know what historical time period you're going into uh, what the context of that is and i think that would be really great because you know like you said i think some of these simplopedia entries are really pretty good and yeah, it would be I, great I, to have a lot of that work kind of centered in the gameplay rather than you know like oh i have to come up here to this tiny little button click on it and then go and search through and find, you know, what I'm interested in. But look at this. I mean, this is, yeah. this is a pretty solid report of it is, very yeah. historical aspects. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, it's one of the things that your whole series that history respond has sort of showed to me is that people who are playing these games are actually super excited about the history. So sometimes I suspect the history brings them to the games, but also the real benefit of these games is they actually get people excited about history. So taking seriously, right, the user's interest in, in history is really, I think, exciting to see. Um, and I think most people, even if they are not professional historians like you and I, want to see the complicated nuances of the past. They want to see the realities mm -hmm. of of the world that may be a little messier, a little uglier, a little more difficult to grapple with. Um, mm -hmm. So any any ways in which those things can be incorporated, I think is always for the better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your point about uh, having more diversity in terms of leadership, uh, we're looking here at uh, England, uh, England Civ, diversity of leadership would also uh, be really welcome, I think. And, you know, it's interesting uh, in Civilization II, uh, you had a, a binary choice. Uh, you could have a, a male leader or a female leader, and they had one for each of the uh, 20 mm. or so civilizations. But they haven't really done that since. Um, you know, most of the civilization uh, civs and leaders that we've had since then have been uh, just one person. Some of these mm. civs here have got multiples, but most of them are just a single leader. So, yeah, okay. it is interesting. I kind of wish that they brought it back. Um, and you could, I, I know there's modifications where you can create your own uh, mm. leader. Uh, so that is an option, but it would be great if they, you know, kind of used multiple leaders for each civ as an opportunity, yeah. not only to diversify gameplay, you know, because Robert the Bruce has got the Bannockburn ability. Well, you could have mm. a different ability for a different leader. Um, yeah. But then also, you know, in addition to improving gameplay, it might also, you know, lead to a lot more of these great, uh, Civilopedia entries that might Absolutely. direct players to go and study that history afterwards. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, there are some tailor-made women to be part of this, you know, as I mentioned, um, St. Margaret of Scotland, but of course, Mary Queen of Scots, or her mother, Marie de Guise, who is French in origin, but was um, 
essentially the regent for Scotland for the bulk mm. of, of Mary Queen of Scots youth. And she was sort of a brilliant leader in a lot of ways. So, you know, um, that would be very, very cool and fascinating. And I'm seeing actually that in the Robert the Bruce entry, I noticed that one of his um, agendas is Flower of Scotland. Well, I kind of, I love that actually taking the sort of informal modern uh national anthem, I guess, informal anthem of Scotland and putting that into the game, it's fascinating. There's There are lyrics in Flower of Scotland that talk about, um, you know, fighting against the English and Edward's army and so forth. So it sort of works perfectly in that, in this game. I quite, um, I quite like that the game decided to do that. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Okay. All right. Well, great. I think that does it for this episode of uh, Sips 101. Nikki, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Thank you for having me. 